Welcome to the Something Forum by Echo & Co, a podcast where we talk about digital and organizational transformation, innovation, and nonprofits, and hope you learn something along the way. For this series, we welcome guest Stephen Fee, Vice President of Communications at Enterprise Community Partners. He will talk to us about his career journey from journalism to nonprofits, his work now, and the housing crisis in the United States. We also talk about ambition, vulnerability, and finding people who will help you grow. I'm your host, Andy Vanderland. We're back with Stephen Fee from Enterprise Community Partners. Nice to see you. Likewise. We are wrapping up with our toasts episode. So we want to talk about accolades and successes, um, things we just want to leave, good tastes to leave in people's mouths about the work you're doing. I have some follow-up questions from previous, uh, Lee, from previous episodes about your pets and existential work crisis. But before we get into my random follow-ups, um, what is giving you hope right now? And it can be about work or it could be in the world in general. Hmm. What is giving me hope right now? On the work front, I think, as I said maybe in a prior conversation mm-hmm. on the work front to me, what gives me hope is that more people are paying attention to affordable housing in America. Uh, that it's, it's, it's becoming a, a kitchen table issue for every family, every community across racial, political, geographic and ethnic lines. That to me is very hopeful because that's when you find opportunity. Mm-hmm. I think on a personal level, what gives me hope Um you know, I think that we are in a really, like our country's in a really difficult moment. I think our economy is in a difficult moment. Um, but, you know, I, I love elections and, and we're <laughs> in an off year right now. But, you know, we're going to go into a presidential election cycle, which I know scares a lot of people. And like, there's a lot of reason yeah. to be worried about the next presidential election, mostly around just all the issues facing our democracy and facing both political parties and facing mobilization. Um but like, I think elections are awesome. I think they're an awesome opportunity for people to connect and meet one another and debate issues. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's really easy to get blasé and it's really easy to be jaded by our current like political moment. But yeah. I don't know, I, I, I am really excited about another national election that, you know, forces a lot of big issues to the front. And um, I think for us in like, the advocacy world and the nonprofit mm-hmm. world, it's always an opportunity, right? It's always a moment for us to figure out how does, how does what we work on intersect with where the American conversation is moving? Cause it's that time every four, you know, of course we have elections and off cycle years and midterms and whatever, but the presidential election grabs the most attention, right? And it's a moment where we get to have these conversations and these debates. And so, I don't know. I'm, Maybe I shouldn't be optimistic. Maybe disinformation and you know threats to democracy will overwhelm us. Uh, it's very easy to be doomsday about it, but I think it's exciting. Yeah, be optimistic. We need it. It's good to have that counter voice to the doomsday stuff. I try. Connecting the two, your personal and your work hopes. Well personal hopes to your work job. Are you guys doing anything in preparation for the national election, like in terms of communication? Do you 
I don't know, anchor or that? It's all in development. What I will say is that in 2020, Enterprise made a really explicit effort to get questions asked in debates, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. positions to put into party platforms. Yeah. And they really succeeded at that. And, and it showed. And I think that a lot of what you're seeing happening, you know, again, from the administration, right, from the, from the mm-hmm. White House, um, you know, executive actions, um, legislative activity in the Congress, which, by the way, is bipartisan legislative activity that is happening around affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, you know, I, I think people at Enterprise and their allies, of course, should take credit for that. Um, I think those successes are because of enterprise really asserting itself in 2020. And as it always has, I'm not saying they haven't Mm -hmm. done this before. It's just what I know. I wasn't even here, so I can't even take credit for it. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's a, there, it's a, it's a powerful team here that I think is, is, is very influential. Again, you maybe you haven't heard of us before, but you know, we have one of the largest affordable housing policy teams in America at the national and the state level. And they had a real impact, I think, in the last cycle, and I'm sure they will again in 2024, no question. Great. So if everything goes right in the next five years past this coming election, what will your work look like? If everything goes right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I said before, even after our victories, there's another challenge in front of us, yeah. right? You yeah. know, we pass source of income protections, and then the next step is enforcement. You know, we we launch a new fund to get investors eager to invest in affordable homes that are also climate resilient. Then we have to maintain affordability over 15 or 30 years. Um, there's always a new challenge ahead. But, you know, look, a home creating affordable homes takes a lot of time, both preservation and production. And that can be very frustrating. I mean, I think it was uh, San Francisco Chronicle had a story a few months ago something like two years, right? 600 some odd days to get a home built in that part of California, right? And that just seems astounding. So Mm -hmm. I think we have to set ourselves up now for what we're going to look like in five years. So that means we have to align the capital markets, you know, we Mm -hmm. have to get investors, institutional investors, uh, you know, life insurance funds, the big institutional investment players, we have to get them to align and support the work that we're doing investing in communities. Um, you know, one of our one of our big on our investment side, again, enterprise very unique. Um, we have what we call preservation equity, and this is basically where we say to private investors, we say, "Give us your money. We will take your money. We'll put it into a fund, and we'll use that money to acquire uh, a community." that maybe is about to slip out of affordability, maybe mm. it's left its statutory affordability requirements, maybe it's decaying, maybe its systems are deteriorating, maybe it's not climate resilient. We're going to go in and we're going to buy that property. We're going to transform that property. Mm. We're going to keep that property affordable without having rent skyrocket. Private investors are going to, are, are, we, we target returns for those private investors and the residents win too, oh, yeah. because they have a place that they can call home that's affordable yeah. over the long term. So that requires though years of work, years of cultivation. And so, you know, if everything goes right, we're we we're already set up for five years from now. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the pipeline is there. Yeah, you guys have a big time horizon. Yeah, and if we can, and if we can get through some of those regulatory 
pieces, the policy pieces, if we can enable the things that are going to protect residents, but also ensure that housing providers can stay in business, right? Especially small and medium-sized multifamily owners, the mom and pop landlords who are facing economic headwinds. We have to keep them stable too, by the way, right? Because if they aren't profitable, they're going to boost rents. And if you Mm. boost rents, that property becomes less affordable. You got to attack it from both sides of the equation, right? Yeah. So I think we've got to set ourselves up for that kind of success. And it's that kind of long-term horizon that I think organizations like Enterprise um, can embark on because we have such um, scale. Yeah. Mm, I think this is my assumptions. This is just me. This is just me. I don't think about it in that long-term. And it's like, uh, where am I going with this? A lot of times things seem very reactionary and it feels like enterprise community partners is not that you don't you're working on things that cost too much and require too much thinking and too much planning to be so reactionary. Um, You have to think about it in this like long term, I don't know, long term view. Yeah. And it doesn't mean there aren't again, there aren't piecemeal ways of building toward that progress. But you look at, you know, again, you look at what's happening in Southern California and people are experiencing homelessness. Mm. That is a long-term failure of policy, of investment, of, of foresight. And mm-hmm. there's steps we can take right now. You know, there are mm-hmm. steps that we can take to get people safely housed in the near term. But in the long term, you know, permanent supportive housing for people who are experiencing homelessness, for people who face um, substance use uh, issues, for people who are experiencing um, mental health issues or physical health issues, like those require long-term planning and investment. And like that's, that can be very daunting to your point. Um, But again, I think our job is to show how it's done and then show how it can be brought to scale. And by the way, it's not just us. Like, you know, we had over the last couple of years, we led what was called the housing affordability breakthrough challenge. Um, And we, in partnership with Wells Fargo, Uh, did a nationwide search and selected six organizations that are creating innovations through, you know, modular housing design, through um, how we rank or or calculate risk for underwriting mortgages, um, how we're sustainably using our forest resources, you know, all kinds of different solutions. And so many of these solutions are happening at the local level. And I think what enterprise can do is we can come in, we can help find those we can give them technical support. Sometimes we give them investment and then show how it can scale up. So one of these solutions are called Impact Justice. They're based in Northern California. They basically pair um, people who are returning to communities who have been incarcerated um, and they match them up with homes um, mm. and people like you and me who say, sure, yeah, you can rent out a room. Um, they get job training. They get other support. Um, it's an extraordinary program. And they were part of our housing affordability breakthrough mm. challenge. They're now expanding to Los Angeles County. It is a model for how to do this right. Ah, that's so cool. Um, And our job, I think, is, I think our job in enterprise isn't just to be the home of all solutions. We're not going to figure it out on our own. It's to help find, cultivate, nurture, and scale up the things that are going right. Yeah, it really speaks to the community partners aspect of the work. You aren't trying to fix it all yourselves. You recognize that you can, the organization can help, you know, increase the impact of people on the ground, sort of grassroots, figuring it out, who know the communities and the people they're working with really well. Yeah.
Um, I'm going to go kind of do a call back to one of the things we talked about earlier uh, about your career. It sounds like you had a lot of really great mentors and people that um, gave you guidance along the way, still giving you guidance. What or who has been the most influential resource in your career? Oh, man, you're going to make me choose. It could be a what? It could be a what? It could be mentorship generally. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, look, every boss I have ever worked for, with some exceptions, I stay in touch with. Hmm. Um, I think we know in this business, this is a small world, right? Mm -hmm. And people know each other and you have a reputation and you Mm -hmm. learn from one another. And I have just worked for some extraordinary leaders. I name-checked a few of them. Dee Dee Donovan from originally Physicians for Human Rights now at the Roseville Institute. Sybil Wyatt, um, who was my boss at Central European University. Um, Suzanne Nossel, who was my boss at Penn America. Um, You know, that you're never alone in this business. Mm-hmm. And, and it, I just been I've floored by the generosity of the people who have mentored me in my career. Right. Um, but I will say, I think it get it getting back to I think the place where we started, which is around writing. Like mm-hmm. there are two people who I really learned to write from. One was my sophomore English teacher, Nina Scott, who at one point I wrote like this dumb personal essay. And I said something about my, like eyes looking upward or like rolling up. I use this like terrible <laughs> metaphor. And she like drew a little picture of like eyeballs rolling in the margin. <laughs> and, and, and I think that was the first time that like, I thought I was so smart when I was in high school. I thought I was such a good writer. And Miss Scott was like, you can be better than this. And I think it's where I first learned, like there's always room for lots of growth. And there was a lot of room for growth. And to not be precious about what I write. Mm, yeah. Every every good piece of writing has been rewritten a thousand times. And that extended to when I was in the news business. When I was at NewsHour, I worked for the news director for a while in the newsroom, this guy, Russ Clarkson. And I would write, you know, anchor copy, 20, 30 second copy about news stories. And it's the best writing training you'll ever get. He will pick <laughs> your writing apart every time. He used to make me write the very few sports stories that we would do, I would write the sports stories because he knew I didn't know anything about it. Yeah. Just forced me to do it, tear it apart and put it back together again. And mm. I think you build up your, you build up a thick skin for your writing and your abilities. And I'm so grateful for that because I've carried that through to everything I've ever done in my professional life. How sure are we that the high school, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the teacher's name, but the sophomore. Nina Scott. She didn't kill your poetic side with that comment. <laughs> no, you know, I think it was, if it didn't make sense to her, it wasn't going to make sense to any reader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? And so, yeah. you know, it was like, it was funny, right? Like we laughed about yeah. it because it was a goofy, dumb thing yeah. to write. Sorry, dumb is the wrong word. It was a goofy thing to write. And, <laughs> and we made it better. We made it better. And, yeah. and I think that's the thing. Like writing can feel like a really solitary venture. And for many people who write, it is. Again, I'm not calling myself a writer. I'm a person who writes. Um, <laughs> but like, you always got to have an editor. You always got to have other eyes. And you can't take it too seriously. And you can't take it as too precious. Because in the end, like, it, you can only get better. Yeah. I have heard a lot through the, I don't know, whatever grapevine, I'm sure there's one, and I'm, that's where I've heard it from, about the editing process in journalism being just very harsh. And that uh, it takes some time to get used to all of the red lines 
Uh, I don't know how well I would take that, but that's okay. Uh, what have you learned about how to give feedback in that kind of editing process? Oh, that is such a good question. I forget this a lot, that not everyone has gone through that gauntlet, mm. right? Like yeah. I've gone through it. I've been yeah. there. I've had myself just trashed and taken apart. And, I, and people <laughs> have been ruthless and people have been kind and everything in between. Yeah. And I sometimes forget that when I'm mm-hmm. editing, especially um, one of the most, I think one of the best tactics that I've learned is that, you know, we all work in like Microsoft Word or Google Docs or whatever, yeah. and we track changes, right? And it's like, God, it's just it. the most distressing thing to see the lines and the red and the green and the movement. Yeah. To me, it's like, we just have to talk to people about it first, mm. right? Yeah. And I think, again, yeah. like in the remote work world, in the virtual world, like we just kind of like deliver documents to one another. Mm-hmm. And we don't often think about like, you probably just tore that person apart. Yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah. and maybe you should have sat with them and talked through the edits. Um, you know, when I was like a college, you know, I worked for my college newspaper, right? Like. Yeah. Our tactic in the mag, I worked for the weekend magazine. Our tactic was that like we sat with the writer side by side when we did the first edit on front of the book features, like 300 to 500 word features. Um, And it's how you do it, right? Because like, you're not going to learn otherwise. Mm -hmm. Because all someone sees is that like, I didn't do a good job. It all had to be rewritten. And I don't Mm -hmm. know what I did wrong. So I'm going to do it right the next time. And like, we can all learn as writers, like we all have room to grow. And if you don't know how to make it better, it's going to be, it's going to be a negative experience and it shouldn't be. Editing is great. Like it's, it's how we get the work done. I am like hiding in my hoodie right now because I've been on both sides of this. I've been the person who's just gotten the document and I'm just like, oh my God, I can't even with the track changes, just make the change. I don't care if I miss the period. Um, I know, I know. (laughs) And it's, and it's hard and it's, it can feel like a personal thing. Yeah. Because we, some of us put so much into it. And I've totally done it to people. Like I've totally just like destroyed it. And then my colleague, he's great. He was like, Andy, I feel like I can't do my job when you do it this way. And I'm like, totally fair. This is my thinking. So I like went back through, changed the document back and walked. I mean, I like, we did it asynchronously, but I like made a document. Like, this is what I was thinking, why I changed it. He's like, I get it. And now I will do this thing differently and not this other thing. I'm like, cool. Uh, So. Yeah. And, and look, the other side of it is there's a lot of people out there who never learned how to write. Mm. And that's a real, like, it's a real problem. It's a real problem when people aren't getting that feedback because Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I, I, I talked to my dad about this. My dad's retired, but he was a lawyer, right? And he's like, the worst thing is lawyers who can't write. And like, my dad's a great writer, you know? I mean, yeah, yeah. he's a lawyer and he does all these other things. But like, he's a great writer. <laughs> yeah. and, and, it, and it really mattered to him to try to teach young lawyers how to write. Um, so look, it's, it's universal, right? It's like, you got to know how to, you got to know how to do it. Did he read your paper? Did he read that high school pay-per-view with yeah. rolling eyeballs? No, I never had. <laughs> so I went to boarding school for high school, which is its own, you know, a weirdness. Oh, no. um, but yeah, I was always way too nervous to have my parents yeah. read my stuff. Yeah. You know, I'd it's much rather have Miss Scott, you know, tear it apart mm-hmm. than my mom mm-hmm. or dad. <laughs> um, okay, one last on-topic question. Well, I don't know. Maybe we'll see. What we you talked about earlier? You had these existential work crises. What types of crises do you have? 
It's so it's so hyperbolic. Like I, you know, <laughs> look, I I live a charmed life. I am so lucky. I have I am I am I know I am so blessed in so many ways. Yeah, I get it. Um, but look, I think that for all of us, you know, my my folks, I think a lot about my family, right? And mm-hmm. for my folks, like they switch jobs maybe once or twice in their careers before retiring. I never did. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think there's been a real generational shift. I mean, I graduated from college just before the mortgage crisis, just Mm -hmm. before the economic meltdown. And I think that was super destabilizing in ways that we don't really talk about Mm -hmm. for the generation that came up during that time. And again, look, every generation has its problems and the challenges it faces. I mean, the COVID generation in particular, like, I, I don't know how kids are making it through like college and high school during these past few years. But I will yeah. say, I think for those of us who came up at that time, it really shook, it really shook um, notions about uh, work and, and financial security. Um, you know, pensions were cut, 401ks eliminated, salaries were frozen. I yeah. mean, it was a really destabilizing time. And so I think it's kind of kept me at a, I wouldn't say it's kept me at crisis mode, but it's certainly, you know, I'm on my toes and, yeah. and, you know, I, it, COVID was a scary time for a lot of nonprofits. Um, you know, so many nonprofits face serious financial headwinds, went out of business. I mean, you know, I will say like, you know, my husband worked for a nonprofit and was furloughed. Um, you know, mm. we faced some financial stressors at PEN America. Yeah. But again, we were really lucky because we have great leadership who helped us weather it. Um, but I think that that's, I think we don't sort of think about just how that's changed the working life for people, um, mm-hmm. especially in our field where, again, resources can be slim. It's not like you're working for a big company that's super stable. Um, yeah. So I think that, you know, when I say existential crisis, it's like, it's just about work, right? It's not about my yeah. actual life. It's, but, you know, work can sometimes be all consuming. Um, for sure. And I think the other piece of it has been, for me at least, um, Am I growing and am I learning? Right. And I think that that can be really hard to know. Um, Is this the right job move? I mean, again, I think I can Mm -hmm. say this. Anyone who looks at my LinkedIn can see like I've moved a a lot in my career. Um, And, you know, like when I came to to enterprise, it wasn't because I was unhappy at PEN America. I, I loved PEN America and I loved the work, but I looked at, enterprise, the issue, the opportunity, the challenges, the size, the difference, right? You know, revenue generating and other things about it that were just so different. I was like, I got to do it. I got to do it. And I'll tell you, I think some of the hardest conversations are telling bosses that you're leaving an organization. Um, And I have to say, again, everyone I have ever worked with has been exceptionally graceful, exceptionally like kind and, 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 and supportive of those moves. But that's a really, it's scary to walk away from something that's good to try something new. Yeah. And yeah. you know, it's a, you, you gotta leave the, you gotta leave the safe Harbor sometimes. I can totally relate to pretty much everything growing up with the, I mean, I finished my master's right in 2019. Nope. That's a lie. 2009. <laughs> right. And it's just like, there are no jobs anywhere. I'm just like, cool. I'm going to go work at a barn with a master's degree. Not to be all like hoity-toity about it, but it's like an investment. Um, And I love horses. So, you know, it was fine. Uh, But like there is, there's this uncertainty and it always feels like there's a little bit of risk just like underneath everything, like a little bit of, I'm not sure. 
Yeah. And look, and not to get back to like the to enterprise and the affordable housing issue, but like part Please of the do. reason I've been able to do that is because I have an affordable place to live. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. You cannot take those kinds of risks if you do not have the security of a home, like 100%. And look, Absolutely. I live in a rent-stabilized home in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, right? Which means that my rent can't go up beyond a certain amount every year that's that's chosen by a board in New York mm-hmm. City. Um, it's it's how we've been able to live our lives. We're, yeah. we're, I'm, I am, it's weird to say, I am grateful to the policymakers who put that policy in place because it allowed me to do the personal and professional things that I've wanted to do with my life. Um, mm-hmm. and like that's a real freaking blessing that so many people don't have. So many people don't have. Yeah. It's the only reason I have, I've been able to do it. Yeah. I mean, I thought about that when I was unemployed after schooling, I lived with my parents, like how in a great house, I didn't have to worry about it. That's not, right. I mean, that's not available to many, many people. Um, and I thought about that, even if I lost my job now, I have, uh, you know, people who could help me, right? Like I have this resource that can help me. Yeah, no, but it's, it really is. It's really true. Cause you're right. It's like, it's like that room to take risks mm-hmm. is, is really, really important. I think in our business, right? Because yeah. I think again, you know, look, I, I think for folks, maybe they're listening or they're in our business, Again, nonprofits can be small. Sometimes you're talking about a one-person department. So, you know, your ability to grow sometimes means moving on or moving yeah. up or moving out or going on your own. I mean, there's so yeah. many different configurations. They all have baked-in risk. And I think if we're going to attract the best talent to this field, you know, I mean, yes, we have an obligation to, like, make sure that we're paying fair wages, mm-hmm. that we're supporting our employees, that we're doing all the right things as employers, I think at the same time, we also have to reckon with this idea that like, you know, for people who are in an unstable housing situation, I mean, like I, I didn't graduate from college and I wasn't worried about how I was going to pay my bills. Right. Right. I had a job, but I also had support. And that's why I was able to go and take that first job at news hour and be a desk assistant and get $9 an hour. And I was happy about it. And that was great. In New York. That was only because of the benefits that I had by having resource and 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 that's what's kept i think our that's what's really holding i think our business back and our industry back is that for young Mm. people especially who want to enter this field there's a real economic um hurdle to doing so because it's just a challenging environment and we have to change that yeah this is for i don't know bonus episode but i thought about that a lot with innovation also it's like there's a whole huge swath of the world, but in the US, that are brilliant people who have so many, like have the brains to come up with the next great things, but they have to spend too much of their mental energy making sure they can feed themselves and their family to come up with these ideas. Yeah. How do we open up their brain space so that they can think about the innovative things, right? Like, yeah. so they have the mental capacity and the physical capacity because they're not tired, under new, like undernourished, to come up with the innovative things because they're out there. I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but there was a study from a few years ago. So there's this program called the Low Income Housing Tax Credit. It's basically Mm -hmm. the most successful tax credit program ever that helps subsidize the construction and preservation of affordable homes. Um, You know, there are tax credits that are dispersed across the country. And there was a study done that showed that for a child living in a low income housing tax credit supported home, Mm-hmm. Every year they were in that home, their 
every year they live in that taxpayer um, subsidized home, their likelihood of achieving a higher education goes up by 3% every year. That's living crazy. in an affordable home is a cumulatively life-changing experience. <sighs> wow. They're more likely to get a higher education. Their wages will go up. I mean, this, the math is there, you know? Gosh, I got the chills. Even though I flubbed it? <laughs> yeah, I did though. We'll fact check and put some facts somewhere, but yeah, that's amazing. Like that's yeah, yeah. That's great. Um, all right. I over. right. We're going a little bit over. I want to ask one question. It's about your puppies. Can you tell me about your two dogs? We got two dogs. One is named Mac, M-A-C-K. Daddy Mac, Cute. Return of the Mac, whatever. Nickname so you want to many give opportunities. Mac and he cheese, is, obviously. Mac and cheese. We thought about naming another dog cheese. How appropriate yeah. would that be? So Mac <laughs> is a uh, 10-year-old kind of lab hound mix. We adopted him when he was about a year old from a group yeah. in New York City called the um, Badass Brooklyn Animal Rescue. Rescue dogs are the best. He is special in so many ways um, and has you know, been with us now for so long. And then during the pandemic, we adopted a puppy. Uh, we named him Tibor, T-I-B-O-R. It's a Hungarian <laughs> name. My husband and I met in Hungary. It's for another podcast. Um, we He's a German shepherd mix, little guy. Um, absolute, you know, terror. When we adopted Perfect. him, uh, another rescue group called Rescue City here in New York City. He had been adopted out and the family that adopted him brought him back with a broken leg. And we knew the folks who were fostering him. We saw him in the neighborhood with his little cast doing his little hobble down the street. And we were like, sold. So now we're those people with two dogs who live in a one bedroom apartment in New York city. And they're 15, 60 pounds. And they are big. (laughs) They are our lives in good ways and bad. (laughs) I love it. That's great. Great note to end on. Give your puppies hugs for me. I will. They're, I'm at the office. So they're not here, but I'll tell them okay. to hello. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for being on here with us. Such a pleasure. Thanks so much, Andy. Thank you for tuning in to the Something Forums series with Stephen Fee, Vice President of Communications at Enterprise Community Partners. I'm your host, Andy Vanderland. Melissa Huntley is our editor. The music you hear in this episode is Something About Something by Sarah, the instrumentalist. This podcast is produced by Echo & Co., a digital agency sending creativity on a mission. 